This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Today, I'm going to cover just kind of a down and dirty legal risks for the unweary, in particular as it pertains to the acquisition process. This is something I recently covered at the SECO Manufactured Housing Conference in Atlanta. And kind of, um, you know, quick quick dive into a number of topics. Um, so I thought I'd share it with you guys so it's all in one spot. So first off, letter of intent. That's generally you find a deal, you want to make an offer, you give them a letter of intent. I've talked about many times how I like having the letter of intent be binding. Ideally, letter of intent also has specific performance in it. You know, one thing, as after you get to the letter of intent, you go for a contract. Key contract provisions, if you only get a couple of them, you generally want the right to assign. Ideally, assign to anybody. That way you can wholesale a deal if you want to, but at least assign it to a new special purpose entity, a new LLC. If the seller wants to limit that, they can limit it to one that you control or the one you're a member of or manager of. <clears throat> That's generally, you know, business decision for you. Generally, you want you to have a clear inspection period, regardless of number of days. So let's say 30-day inspection period. I want it to be clear that my earnest money is refundable and that I can be the sole and unilateral voice to tell the title company to release my earnest money if it's during the refundable period. I generally want the right to extend. Typically, this will be, hey, I need a 30-day extension. I'll pay $10,000 non-refundable for the extension. I also want the inspection period to toll, meaning my shot clock doesn't start until I get a number of items. And typically that would be a preliminary title commitment from the title company, a list of seller deliverables, and ideally my survey as well, because I can't fully review title without the survey. And those things take time, so I don't want to be wasting my time, uh, wasting my shot clock when I don't have all the information that I really need to analyze the deal. I also want in the contract the seller to have certain representations and warranties. You know, basically, I don't want to just buy this as is, where is, how is. You know, I want to have some rep. Like you're unaware of any condemnation proceedings. You're unaware of any pending lawsuits, things like that. Next, I want the contract to have breach provisions. And typically, I want the breach provisions to say that if the seller breaches, I can do a combination of and require specific performance, meaning make them specifically sell to me, and or damages. Ideally, I have actual damages, punitive damages, consequential damages, and any remedies at law or equity. Next up, I'm going to have a contract. I'm going to put an escrow with the title company. I'm pretty agnostic on title company, but if I get to choose, great. Um, ultimately, the title pol- initial preliminary title commitment, at the end, it'll be an owner's policy. But at the beginning, I'm just going to review it for what's the ownership what are the exceptions to the t- to clean title insurance? You know, are any easements of record, taxes of record, any liens like bank liens or mechanics liens? I want to buy the property without those liens. And then I want to be able to get endorsements. Typically, I'll try to get a survey endorsement or a zoning endorsement, perhaps an access endorsement. Depends on uh, the facts, but 
in order to get a zoning endorsement, I need to have a zoning letter. In order to get a survey endorsement, I need to have a survey. And title company needs to review that. And then sometimes there's a fee. Generally, it's not too expensive. I think it's generally worth it to pay for these endorsements. The endorsements offer kind of an additional level of insurance or additional level of security in case there was an error that goes beyond what the you know, local government official signs or a change in policy. You could be helped uh, in that event. Or the surveyor makes a mistake. Ideally, the surveyor has insurance and has their seal. But a lot of surveyors only carry insurance up to a million bucks. If you're buying a $10 million deal and the surveyor is really goofed, you know, that million dollars isn't going to feel so good. Next up in the you know process is I, I get a survey. There's three types of survey, you know, boundary survey, which is basically you know a red line polygon like you get on the county GIS page. I don't really think boundary surveys are worth much. And then you got your base alta survey. It's more expensive, but generally better, among other things. It shows you where easements are located. And then, you know, the Rolls-Royce of surveys is the table A alta survey with a bunch of items checked. There's plus or minus 20 items you can check on table A. If you're going to do heavy infill, you may want to pay for some of these. <coughs> these would include things like locations of the actual utility lines, you know, floodplain, height of buildings, uh, square footage of buildings, distance between buildings. It'll show all the easements and stuff as well. Um, you can get topography on there. Um, any survey should show you the acreage, so you can kind of back in the density. But, you know, you can get the parking spaces shown. Um, parking ratio, you know, adjacent property owners, a number of things. I have, I have entire other um, podcasts on surveys, so I won't beat it to death here. But I also like looking at the survey to see if there's any access issues or lot size issues. Like you get a bunch of small uh, lot sizes, um, you know, that's, that's an issue if you're going to infill. Um, you know, next step is to get the phase one environmental. Um, not much to say there is get a clean one from a professional uh, engineer. The next step in the uh, acquisition due diligence process and things you can mess up has to do with zoning and permitting. Basically, you want to know, for all the vacant lots, can I put a home on those? Ideally, I can put a home on those of any age, of any size, with no setbacks, save, you know, perhaps fire code between homes, but no perimeter setbacks, no interior road setbacks. For the occupied lots, I want to know, if the home burns down, moves away, or otherwise is destroyed, can I put a home back on what is currently an occupied lot? And I want to, you know, just get the city to just put in writing, that there's no additional infrastructure requirements or tap fees, any transfer fees or transfer impacts. I just recently saw one where the park could the the operating license could not be transferred to a new owner. You know, my client didn't see that beforehand, and they bought a park and now they're not allowed to own it. And then it's pretty hard to go back and get legal conforming zoning. I want to just make sure that I got all the permits. So I have this I have the city or the county sign off saying there are no permits, no fee. If I find a permit fee, I'll, I'll write that in there. But this is a good like last check in case the seller's due diligence doesn't provide it. But are there city fees counts, city permits, county permits, state permits? Is there a certificate of occupancy necessary to bring in a home? Is there just a different infill permit? Um, what are the setbacks? You know, I've covered before the three types of zoning. You know, illegal, which is I estimate five percent. Legal conforming, probably five to ten percent. <clears throat> and then legal non-conforming, i.e. grandfathered, and that would be the vast majority of the parks that I see. And your grandfather rights, you need to know what can what can uh, neuter them. Uh, typically, it's going to be abandonment, 
some cities will say, you know, if you have a vacant lot for six plus months, it's deemed abandoned. Um, second thing to neuter your grandfather rights would be nuisance. It's typically a technical term, a statutory process to deem you a nuisance. And you generally get a right to hearing, a right to cure, uh, things of that sort. And the third one would be, you know, in our world is fire code typically or, or you know, road transit. But typically it's, it's, it's basically the city's police power to protect the public health, safety, welfare, and morals of the community. So that can be a challenge at times, um, a lot of times with setbacks or um, they try with age of homes. I think that's pretty aggressive by cities if the home is post-HUD. You know, if it's post-1976, what what's the difference between 1991 and 1992? Not much, right? I mean, I have, I have a 1990 that's better than a 2020, right, in condition. But the cities sometimes try to create these arbitrary guidelines on home age. The next thing, uh, legal risk that will be to watch out for during the acquisition process be concerning bank docs. Typically, you're going to have local bank, regional bank, CMBS lender, agency lender. The best terms would likely be under agency, but it's hard, hard to um, comply with their guidelines. Certain, typically, you know, 50 plus pads, million plus loan amount, 35% or less park owned homes. You have to do a property condition assessment. Um, most banks have an appraisal requirement. Um, you can negotiate loan docs better with a regional bank or CMBS lender. Local banks, they often don't want to negotiate, but the docs are pretty vanilla. Uh, agency lenders, they really don't want you to negotiate those. I mean, minimally, there's certain provisions you can, but for the most part, they want you to sign off in advance saying, here's the form doc, do you agree? You can sometimes have additional riders um, or addenda but those are pretty hard to get in a, way, in a manner that's favorable to the borrower. The bank, the bank rarely loses, unfortunately, in a negotiation. And then what bank docs are we talking about here? Well, you, you generally get a promissory note or a business loan agreement. You'll have some form of deed or mortgage. Um, the bank's going to be involved in assignment of rents. And then often there's a guarantee. And if it's a full recourse guarantee, then it's kind of a personal guarantee by you know, the human being typically behind the entity. If it's a you know limited or non-recourse guarantee, it could be just for you know, bad way carve-outs. Basically, don't commit you know, white-collar crime, fraud, deception, uh, tax evasion, things like that. Otherwise, the non-recourse can spring into recourse, which is no picnic. Um, as you get through that those bank docs, you get closer to closing, typically closing with the opposing party, you're going to have an assignment of leases. Basically, I want to have assignment of leases that are favorable to say, look, the seller represents that they're not in default, represents that the rent rolls accurate, represents that I get any seller rights. You know, so, for example, if the person's already 31 days behind on rent, I want the rights to perceive the eviction without having to start over and go. Typically, you'll get the assignment of the security deposits because those security deposits are a liability to the landlord. You know, there's the tenant's money. Some states require you to hold it in a separate checking account or provide interest, perhaps. Generally, if you take the deposit, it has to be for good reason, like violation of certain lease provisions. You need to give them a reconciliation or an accounting of the security deposit forfeiture. Um, that's part of the assignment of leases. Um, I'd like to get this, the other party to, I think it's good mutually to do a mutual indemnification. So, you know, if I'm buying the park today, 
and the seller rejected somebody yesterday because their skin color was purple, I don't want to two days two three days later they're the purple guy's lawyer to show up and say that I'm racist when I wasn't the one that made that decision. So I want to be if there's a lawsuit, I want to immediately be dismissed from it and say talk to the seller. Another closing document: a bill of sale. Uh, ideally, the seller represents and warrants they own the homes. If they don't have titles, they should I disclose that. If they don't have titles, then there needs to be some adjustment in price for the brain damage and the expense and the risk of going through the Abandoned Housing Act or some other process to get the titles. Another closing document review would be the closing statement, often called the HUD or the settlement statement. You want to review proration of rent, security deposits, proration of taxes. You want to make sure any of your endorsements that you're, you've asked for are on there and you pay for them. Um, I've seen Tuckers mess lots of things up on this side. You know, you want to make sure that they've got access and they got the right amounts to the dollars you're supposed to provide. And typically debt and equity. Sometimes there's credits that you're supposed to get. Um, and generally, best practice would be to have a closing instruction letter, which basically protects you. If I'm the buyer... I do not want the title company to give the seller my money until they have all of these executed documents in their possession and until, you know, my mortgage is recorded, until the deed is transferred to me, all that stuff. So there's a process in timeline order and a good lender is going to be in the middle of that and even in a really good lender is going to send their own closing instruction letter. But a lot of people don't do that. Um, a good title company, in theory, you don't need one, but... Title companies often make mistakes, so you want to have in writing that they're only allowed to do X, Y, Z in that order, and that's typically in the form of a closing instruction letter. And then at closing, realistically before closing, I'm going to have already set up my entity structure. You know, if I've got a new LL, new LLC, I'm going to need to pro I'm going to have to provide the articles of organization, an EIN, an operating agreement to the title company. Sometimes to the other party if they require it which they generally shouldn't care, in my opinion. And then if you're doing a 1031, you need to provide that and the qualified intermediary's name. And if you're doing any sort of tenant in common or, you know, tick structure or joint venture, that needs to be spelled out. And typically the lender would need that in addition to the title company. In theory, you know, you've given the lender plenty in advance because it was part of their underwriting to approve the loan. If it's a syndication, it's you got to have all those docs right. I've covered that ad nauseum on the SEC requirements for private placement memorandum and things, things of that sort. And but those are the docs you really need and, the, and, the, and kind of the steps from a legal perspective you need through closing. Obviously, post-closing, you've got to have, you know, leases, ideally a state-specific lease. And then you just need to have regular operations, you know, from insurance and, you know, workers' comp and general liability and casualty insurance if you've got a management entity you're managing yourself, you would want all of your staff to have you know, signed off on proper uh, fair housing and all these other policies. Um, we've got policies on well, employees, you know, work from home policy, a travel policy, a per diem policy, a sexual harassment policy. Um, and then you got to, you know, if you're, again, if you have employees or even contractors, you want to make sure you have the right waivers and or employment and employment contracts. You should have posted, you know, EEOC posters and minimum wage posters and you know, your rights under the law posters in your break room or, or otherwise at least provide them to your to your team. But overall, um, if you do it smart, right, do it right, you're going to avoid these legal risks for the unwary. 
Um, but a lot of people just don't do these. You know, people that are like, ah, I don't want to pay for a survey. Okay, well then, no, that's a risk. Or, ah, I don't want to pay for a phase one. Okay. Or, you know, I talked to the city. He said his zoning's cool. Okay, well, who'd you talk to? What does cool mean? What'd you say? What'd they say? Is it in writing? You know, did you verify it? Um, did you give it to the title company? Did they bless it and give you a zoning endorsement? These are the sort of things that, um, if you do them right, they're kind of easy. People just regularly don't do them properly. So don't be that guy. Don't make the mistake. Uh, this has been recorded, so if you missed one, go back and listen again. Till next time, thanks and God bless. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.